in South Korea, a young man named Lee Jing-Yu recited his marriage vows before a local priest. One of uh, Jing-Yu's friends said this about the groom. He is completely obsessed, and he takes it everywhere. They go out to the park or the fun fair where it will go on all the rides with him. Then when he goes out to eat, he takes it with him, and it gets its own seat and its own meal. The it that Jing-Yu's friend was referring to was his bride, a large braided as just another expression of modern love was between a man and his pillow. In Toronto, Stephanie released an emotional video explaining a recent decision to identify as a six-year-old. A year ago, she said, I was eight, and my adopted sister was seven. My sister said to me, I want you to be the little sister, so I'll be nine. I don't mind going to six. Two years before recording video, Stephanie was known as Paul. Before I as a six Paul and his wife have children. Guys, would it help if I switch to the handheld mic? We good? Okay. Continuing on. A committee of doctors unanimously approved treatment suffering of three patients, children ages 9, 11, and 17. Those in favor of this treatment celebrated it as serene, peaceful, beautiful, dignified, and humane. This treatment, which claims to humanely end the suffering of children, is euthanasia. Belgium is the only country that authorizes assisted suicide for children of any age, at least for now. And in New York, a team of lawyers and activists defends a 47-year-old client who has spent her entire adult life behind bars in the Bronx. Her attorneys argue that she's being detained illegally her personhood is being violated. Initially dismissed by the lower courts, it was recently announced that the state's court of appeals would hear her case. So eventually, Happy the Elephant will have her day in court. And if attorneys from the Non-Human Rights Project get their way, her personhood rights will be recognized and she'll be released from the Bronx Zoo. Now, each of these stories has a common theme. Each is an example of a discarded distinction. Those suing on behalf of elephant personhood have discarded the distinction between humanity and the rest of creation. Those celebrating euthanasia, whether it's of children or adults, have discarded the distinction between life and death.
those identifying as another gender have discarded the distinction between male and female. And those marrying pillows or horses or trees or members of the same sex have discarded the relationship between marriage and every other human relationship. Over the next five weeks, we're going to be examining how crucial it is to understand these five divine distinctions. Our goal as a church is to build our lives faithfully on the foundation of God's Word. And that begins right at the beginning of Scripture. So if you're not already there, grab your Bible, open up your app, and go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Over the past 12 weeks, we zoomed out and took kind of a bird's eye view of each of the 12 minor prophets and just kind of hit the high points from each one of those books of Scripture. Uh, for the next five weeks, we're going to be zooming in and we're going to focus on five divine distinctions from the first two chapters of Genesis. This is not a sermon series in Genesis, uh, although that would be fun, and maybe someday we'll do that together. What we're doing is looking particularly at five divine distinctions that show up in the first two chapters of the very first book of the Bible. So today, we're going to begin with the distinction between the Creator and the creation in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. On August the 1st, we'll look at the uh, distinction between humanity and all other creatures. The next week, we'll look at the distinction between male and female. Then the distinction between life and death. And then finally, the distinction between marriage and every other relationship. Now, before we move any further this morning, I just want to ask you to ask yourself, what did I think what did I feel when I heard a story about a man marrying a pillow or a 52-year-old man identifying as a six-year-old girl or about an elephant being treated as if it's a human person in the state of New York or euthanasia for children? What did you think? What did you feel? Perhaps for some, the first instinct was some sort of scorn. Perhaps your first thought was, was to scoff in your heart and mind and look down on anyone that would think or feel or act in such a way. My heart in this series is not to give ammunition for your scorn, to throw fuel on the fire of arrogance, but for us to see rightly so that we can have compassion for those who are captives of a lie. And I believe that begins by understanding the first and most crucial distinction in the first two chapters of Genesis, and that is the distinction between the creator and the creation. Uh, Lord willing, over the next five weeks, we want to try to ask two simple questions from week to week. What does this mean, and why does this matter? So look with me at Genesis 1, verse 1. Let's read it again one more time, and then let's ask those two questions today as we examine this topic. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What does that mean? What does it mean to say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth? I want to show you four truths from that simple sentence that begins our Bibles. Number one, it's clear from Genesis 1-1 that time has a beginning. Time has a beginning. You notice, right, the first few words, in the beginning. As I was preparing for this sermon series, I, 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 as I was preparing for this, this sermon, I, I began to, to do a deep dive and, and study some things that we know about time. And, and I dove for a little bit, or dove is probably the wrong word. I tipped my toe just a little bit in Einstein's theory of relativity and was looking for things that might be helpful for us to understand time. And uh, then I said, no, this is way, way too confusing and complex for me. You guys can teach me about that later because I couldn't make heads, heads or tails of it. So I don't pretend to understand even a, a fraction of what physicists know or claim to know about time. But on the authority of God's word, we can clearly say at least this, time has a beginning. Time is not infinite. It does not stretch back into eternity past. There is a beginning of time. Time is not a big circle. It's not cyclical. It's linear. It's actually moving in a direction, regardless of what the Marvel Cinematic Universe would want you to believe. Time moves in a direction. It has a beginning, and it has an end. Second truth from this verse. God existed before time. Seems Straightforward, right? Look at verse 1 again. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. He did not begin at the beginning. He was there before the beginning. He exists before and outside and beyond time. We could say, in fact, that time itself is yet another of His creation. Creations. He does not exist in time, but beyond time, above time, outside of time. This idea is repeated throughout Scripture. But just consider one example. Remember when Moses goes to see or to see the burning bush on the mountain, and he hears God speak to him, and God sends him to go to Pharaoh and to say, let my people go. And Moses is giving all these excuses, and one of his excuses is, well, well, who am I talking to? Who am I going to tell them sent me? Remember what God says? I am who I am. Not I was, not I will be, but I am. The eternal present, God exists outside, beyond, before time. Even his covenant name, Yahweh, says that God exists outside of time. Third truth from the text. In the beginning, God created. God is creator. God is creator. Uh, the rest of chapter 1 tells us the story of how God created. 
Now, that's, that's not where we're going to be spending our time this morning. But it is significant. It is important. And, and I will just tell you that, that Christians have debated for a long time the details about how God created. But we cannot debate that God is creator. That's clearly taught from the beginning to the end of the Bible. So listen to Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Around the throne, the saints in heaven sing, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So it's no wonder that the very beginning of the apostles' creed for nearly 2,000 years, God's people have said, I believe in God the Father Almighty, what? Creator, maker of heaven and earth. God is the creator. So already from one little verse, we've learned that time is a beginning. God existed before time, and God is the creator. Let's examine one more truth, and we're going to spend most of our time this morning. God is distinct from all his creation. Look at the text again. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Now, if you know the creation story, you know that God doesn't even create dry land until the third day. So when it says that God created the the heavens and the earth, I take that to mean this is a summary statement that God created everything. Uh, We see this also in Colossians chapter 1 where Jesus is is the creator of all things in heaven and all things on earth. So heaven being the universe and all that's in it and earth being this planet and all that's in it. So everything, everywhere was created by God. That's the summary statement of Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created all that there is. And then from verse 2 to the end of the chapter, we learn the details about what and how God created. Now, here's here's what we're saying, if you're tracking with me this morning. Everything that exists can be put into two circles, two buckets, if you will. There is the creator, and there is everything else. So a, a Presbyterian pastor and Princeton grad named uh, Dr. Peter Jones, says there's only two worldviews. If you want to understand the two worldviews, there's basically only two, oneism and twoism. Uh, so you can visualize it with, with two circles. In oneism, there's one circle because there's only one type of existence. Everything is the universe. Everything is matter. In twoism, there's two circles. There's God, the creator, and then coming from him is everything else that exists. You might be saying, you're not telling me anything I don't know, and mostly I'm just confused right now. This actually is crucial to building a biblical worldview. So so let's just dive in just a little bit deeper here. Twoism, according to Dr. Jones, says that there are two kinds of existence. God exists eternally, and everything else has a beginning. That's what Christians believe. God exists eternally. That's one kind of existence, and everything else has a beginning. Everything else falls into a different circle, a different bucket. This is what the theologians sometimes call transcendence. 
that God exists above us, beyond us, other than us. He is set apart. He is distinct from his creation. So we see this right here at the beginning of the Bible, but it's all throughout the Bible. Consider Psalm 57, verse 5. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. He is above and over and beyond and distinct from all his creation. That's oneism. Now, it might be helpful also to understand that even the Bible, when it talks, to God, talks about God as holy, we often think of holiness as some sort of moral perfection, and it's certainly that. But the word holy, Hebrew, is, is kadosh, and it literally means other, set apart, different. So when the Bible says God is holy, 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 saying that God is set apart, he's different from us. We're not a part of him, We're, we proceed from him. I heard a preacher named uh, Paul Washer illustrate it this way. Let me ask you a question. I want you to answer this in your mind. Which is more like God, an angel in heaven or the bacteria on your toilet seat at home? Don't meditate on that too long. But I think most of us instinctively would probably say the, it's the angel in heaven. Of course the angel is more like God. But he said neither. Why? Because both the angel in heaven and the bacteria existing in all sorts of places in your home are creatures, and God is set apart. He is the creator. He's different. That is twoism, and that's essential to a biblical worldview, that there exists a God set apart from us, different from us, and proceeding from him is everything else. Creator, creation. That's twoism. Oneism. The other worldview, Peter Jones calls it, says that there's only one kind of existence. The world is either self-creating or infinite. Everything is made up of the same stuff, matter, spirit, or some combination of the two. So in its secular form, oneism uh, teaches that there, there is no spiritual realm. The universe began with some sort of great singularity, a big bang, and since then, it's just been ever-expanding. Everything that exists is just another form of matter. All you are is random atoms and molecules colliding for a few years of your existence until you go back to the earth in which you came from. You're just matter. That's the atheist, the agnostic worldview. Everything exists of one substance. We're all just atoms and molecules and matter. One atheist author named Greta Christina wrote an article entitled, Comforting Thoughts About Death That Have Nothing to Do With God. And here's how she seeks to comfort those that believe in this. See if you leave comforting, comforted. Your lifespan, she writes, is an infinitesimally tiny fragment in the life of the universe. And there is, at the very least, a strong possibility that when you die, you disappear completely and forever, and that in 500 years, nobody will remember you, and in 5 billion years, the earth will be boiled into the sun. You're welcome. That's what a oneist believes. All we are is matter. We all proceed from the same thing. 
There's a spiritual version of this as well. That's secular oneism. Spiritual oneism teaches that God is everything or that everything is in God. So this would include Buddhism and Hinduism and paganism and ancient Gnosticism, Greek mythology, Native American religions, Wiccans, and much more. If you prefer a more current example, think about Disney's Pocahontas. Remember what she's saying? The rainstorm and the river are my brothers. The heron and the otter are my friends. And we are all connected to each other in a circle, in a hoop that never ends. We're all connected. We're all the same spirit. We're all the same stuff. Or think about Lion King and the circle of life. All just one great circle, all together, we're all the same spirit, all the same type of existence. And in the end, when you die in Eastern religions, you just kind of become another drop in the great ocean of nirvana, and your personality, your you-ness is extinguished forever. Because all we are is one. Or, to those of you that prefer a more mature story... Let's not go to Disney's Pocahontas, but to The Empire Strikes Back. Remember Luke Skywalker on Dagobah? And Yoda says, my ally is the Force, and a powerful ally it is. Life creates it, makes it grow. Its energy surrounds us and binds us. Luminous beings are we, not this crude matter. You must feel the Force around you, here, between you, me, the tree, the rock, everywhere. Yes. That's the best I got. <laughs> well, what, what is the force? It's, we're all bound together. We're all the same thing. We're all just different manifestations of the force. So, so even in the Revenge of the Sith, when, when Anakin, spoiler alert, when Anakin is grieving what's about to happen from the dreams that he's having, Yoda says, don't grieve. Don't grieve. He says, death is a natural part of life. Rejoice for those around you who transform into the force. It's his rejection of that that leads him ultimately to the dark side. That's oneism. All we are is just the same stuff, whether it's spirit or matter. We're all a part of the same thing. Christianity says, no. There is a difference between the creator and the creation. This sets us apart from nearly every other worldview on the planet. Listen to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 22. Paul writes, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because, get this, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Dear brother, sister, friend, in this room, you have two choices. You will worship the creator, or you will worship something that was created. Maybe you say, well, I'm not going to worship anything. But you will. 
you will find yourself very quickly worshiping someone or something. And in the 21st century United States of America, often that something is you. In fact, I think we could say that about almost every era of human history. You will worship the Creator who exists distinct and apart from you, or you will worship the created. Those are the two ways to live. Now, I want to be clear here for just a moment before we move on. It's not enough to believe that there is a Creator. Our Muslim friends, our Jewish friends would believe the same. They would believe in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But in the end, the God they worship is not the God revealed in the Bible. So they too are worshiping a God that has been created. They're worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Here's the question, friend. Who will you worship? Who will you worship? Who will you give your life for? In another In the Beginning passage, we learned this about our Creator in John chapter 1, verse 1. The Scripture says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So in the beginning, when God creates the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1-1, He speaks and light appears. He speaks and galaxies form. He speaks and there's mountains and giraffe and antelope. He speaks and things happen. But John tells us in John 1-1 that the Word of God is not the mere vibration of vocal cords, but a person, Christ Himself. There, in the beginning. And then John tells us in John chapter 1, verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God is distinct. He's different. He's other than. He's transcendent from His creation. And yet, God steps in to His creation. The very God that spoke and earth appeared walked on dusty roads around Galilee. The very God that said to the waters, you can come this far and no further, walked on the sea of, of Galilee. The very God that sculpted Adam and Eve out of the dust of the earth and out of the rib, of, out of Adam's side, took upon himself human flesh, a real beating heart, blood coursing through his veins, and allowed his very blood to be shed so that he could save you. He came to his own, and his own received, received him not. Here's the question, will you receive him? Have you received him? If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to notice that John's gospel tells us you will be born again, not of blood. In other words, you're not going to be born into it biologically. 
not of the will of the flesh. In other words, you're not going to work for it. You're not going to want it hard enough or try hard enough and eventually earn becoming a part of God's family. It's only going to be by the will of God. So if you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, I would plead with you, before you leave here today, ask him to adopt you into his family. Trust him. Trust that he really lived this sinless life and really died this sinner's death and really stepped into this world to save sinful people like you and like me. If you're in this room and you're a Christian, don't be proud that you understand these things. Let not arrogance be what drives us as we relate to confused people in this world around us. May we be those who understand that we are born again by the will of God. So, what does this mean? This, this distinction in Genesis 1-1 means that the Creator is different, distinct, separate, other than, beyond His creation. Question number two this morning, why does this matter? Why does this matter? I'll give you two reasons why this distinction matters. Number one, it reminds us who we are. It reminds us who we are. If you heard anything in the stories that I opened with this morning, I hope, I hope your heart was pricked with compassion for people that don't know who they are. As you relate to your neighbors, to your friends, to your coworkers, who are struggling deeply with identity issues in this very confused world, I hope you will begin relating to them with compassion because they do not know who they are. If you know Christ, if you know God, if you know His Word, you know who you are. About 500 years ago, a young French law graduate named John Calvin wrote his magnum opus. It's called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. Uh, nearly a thousand pages, uh, Calvin's Systematic Theology, it's a book in which many way, in many ways would become the, the summary document of the Reformation. Here's our theology, Calvin's Institutes. And he began his book like this. Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom consists of two parts. All wisdom consists of two parts. The knowledge of God and of ourselves. And then he says this, It is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. Translation, you will never know who you are unless you know who he is. You will never know who you are. Is it any wonder that people in our world are so confused about who they are? If they don't know Him. I remember years ago, um, Holly and I were in Memphis, Tennessee, and I was serving as a youth pastor at a church there. And uh, this was a really traditional Baptist church, and every year we had revival services. You remember revival services? had revival services every year, and this one preacher came one year, and he told an illustration um, that I remember mocking at as I sat in my pew, because it was weird and funny to me at the time, um, but I haven't forgotten it, so it was good. 
even though I didn't think so at the time. He talked about the, a top button down principle. I remember thinking, how cheesy. And he says, you know, if I button my top button on my shirt first, then the rest of the buttons are going to fall into place. But if I start somewhere else, then eventually I'm going to be all cattywampus, he would say, somewhere along the way. It's true. It's true. It maybe it was cheesy to me as a 22-year-old youth pastor, but it's true. If you don't get the top button right, you're probably going to get some other things wrong along the way. Listen, brother, sister, friend, when you look and lament at the confusion in our world today, you ought to be able to understand it because if people don't get this at the very beginning, of course they're going to mess the other things up. You've got the top button wrong. No wonder people are looking for enlightenment and self-worth and purpose and hope in themselves. They've lost the distinction between God and mankind because they've lost the distinction between the creator and the created. No wonder politicians can say, it doesn't matter if I get the facts wrong as long as I'm morally right. It's really easy to get the distinction between truth and, the, and lies wrong if you also have messed up the distinction between the creator and the created. No wonder what so many people are encouraged to forget what anybody else says, what anybody else thinks, and do what's right for you, even if that means taking the life of an unborn child. That makes sense to us if you understand we lose the distinction between good and evil if we've lost the prior distinction, the top button between the creator and the created. No wonder advocacy groups say things like, meat is murder and animals are people too. You're going to lose the distinction between humans and animals if you've lost the distinction between the creator and his creation. No wonder many people value plant life above human life, like the big movement that's growing among uh, millennials and Gen Zers, the birth strike movement, where young people, young ladies are saying, I will not have a child until the environment crisis is fixed. We've lost the distinction between humanity and the earth because we've lost the top button, the distinction between the creator and the created. No wonder our culture is increasingly confused about gender, sexuality, marriage. No wonder in Britain in 2018, there was a 4,400% rise over the previous decade in teenage girls seeking gender treatments. No wonder the numbers of gender reassignment surgeries in the United States for girls in the U.S. recently quadrupled in one year. You're not going to be able to hold the distinction between male and female if you don't have the first distinction between the creator and the creation. Let, let me just say a word to anybody in this room that might be struggling with one or more of these distinctions. We love you. We love you. We're glad you're here. You might have got, gotten an image of Christians from the media or from a TV show or a movie that, that we're, we're bigoted and hateful and we don't like you and we, and we want to push you to the margins of society. That is not true. Listen, we, we love you and we want you to know the truth. 
Sometimes truth does hurt us. Sometimes it feels like it even wounds us at our deepest core, at our very identity. But Jesus himself said, if anyone would come after me, he has to die first. We love you. And we're committed as a church to doing all that we can to walk alongside you and help you understand what the Bible teaches about all these things and more. A couple of nights ago, I was watching a movie with my two littlest girls. And uh, it was a, a Barbie movie about a Barbie princess that swaps places with a Barbie non-princess. And it was riveting stuff, I'll tell you. Um, it really was because I got to be with my two littlest girls. Um, but we're watching the movie together. And at some point, one of the Barbie characters is singing a song. And the song, uh, the lyrics go just a little bit like this. It says, say hello to all the sides of who you are. Never know what you might find. Try it on. You can be who you want to be. All, poss all the possibilities, come on and try it on. Take a chance. See what you got. Don't let yourself get put inside a box. Just try it on. And my sweet little Eleanor uh, looked over at me and she said, Daddy, we like this song, but we don't like these words. She said, you can't be whatever you want to be. You can't be a mermaid. You want to be a mermaid. You can't be a monkey. You're made in God's image. You're a human. You got to be a human. She's right, you know. Can I say something to you, brother, sister, friend? This might seem to you very confining. I can't be whoever I want to be. In a world that screams, do what you want, be what you want, the sky is the limit. Christianity says, no. That might seem incredibly restricting. But can I tell you something? Freedom is not found in limitless possibilities. Freedom is found in knowing your limits as God has created you to be. It is not freeing to tell someone you can do and be anything you could ever imagine. It's freedom to tell someone, here is what God has created you to be. And you have all the freedom to do that with all of your heart for His glory and for your joy. That's freedom. That is real freedom. If you're not struggling with any of this stuff, can I just plead with you? Don't look down on the struggler. Love them. Point them to the truth. We, we say this over and over again here lately. Uh, those that don't understand this are not combatants. They're captives. They need to be set free. And we have the good news that sets people free. And so we love the captives. I was listening this morning to that great song by Keith and Kristen Getty, Oh Church Arise, and they say, we rage against the captor, but we have compassion. I can't remember exactly how they worded it, but we have compassion for the captive. Is that your posture, Christian? Well, second reason why we need this distinction. Why does it matter? It reminds us who we are. Number two, it reminds us why we are here. Why are you here? I'm not asking you why you're here this morning. Why are you anywhere? Why do you exist? 
What is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of your existence? Why were you born? Why does life matter? There's lots of answers that people give to that question. Consider one given by an agnostic playwright named Samuel Beckett. His answer to the question, why am I here, is a 35-second play called Breathe. Now, I don't know how, many, how much money people pay for tickets to a 35-second play, but it's, they're probably being overcharged. I'm glad Holly thought that was funny. That was, I worked really hard on that. <laughs> you can go to YouTube this afternoon and type in Samuel Beckett, Breathe, and if you have 35 seconds, you can watch the play. Here's the, here's the play. It begins with an infant's cry. The curtain then opens on a pile of miscellaneous trash scattered on a stage. You then hear a long, slow exhale, and the curtain closes. What's Samuel Beckett's message? Life is a, va is a vapor. Bracketed between our first inhale and our final exhale, in between, it's nothing but a pile of trash. There's no meaning, there's no order, nothing matters, life doesn't matter. Now Beckett is right in one sense. Even Solomon would say, life is a vapor. Life is short. But he's wrong about what happens in the middle between those two breaths. In fact, I would argue if, if I were able to have a conversation with Mr. Beckett, he doesn't even live like that. If he did, he wouldn't waste his time making a play to show people the non-meaning of life. What's the meaning in that? So what is the meaning of life? If you are a oneist, if your worldview is oneism, if you don't see the, the distinction between the creator and the created, that's all life can be. Because in the end, all you do is go back into the sea of oneness. If, if you're a secular oneist, you're an atheist, you're an agnostic, when you die, you're just atoms and molecules. It doesn't matter. If you're a spiritual oneist, if you're a pagan or a Hindu or a Buddhist, your life gets extinguished in nirvana. It's a drop in the ocean of existence, and you are gone. You don't matter. Your life has no meaning if there is not a creator. In oneism, this life is nothing but extinction and extinguished. Life at the end, and the you that is you is gone. How different is Christianity? How different is Christianity? Here, here, something I learned just recently. I was reading um, C.S. Lewis's The Problem of Pain, rereading that book, and in his chapter on heaven, he's talking about the fact that in heaven, the Bible says that God will give you a new name that only he and you know. And C.S. Lewis says, notice how personal Christianity is. In the end, 
God continues to have a personal relationship with you that is distinct from every other relationship. In other words, you matter. Your life has significance. God, in the end, if you trust him, he will continue until eternity to relate with you uniquely and individually. Listen, this is what every single person on this planet wants. You want to matter. You want to be unique. You want to stand out. You don't want to fit in and just be another number. You want to have a life that in the end matters for something. In Christ, it does. It does. In the end, you have a life that matters. Life has meaning. Life has purpose. Life has you. God created you because he loves you. Listen to what Isaiah 43 says, verses 6 and 7. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. You were made, dear friend, to magnify, to glorify this great God. That's the purpose of your life, to, sh to put a spotlight on how glorious he is. I love the way John Piper illustrates this. You know, we talk about magnifying something. There's two ways to magnify. You can magnify something with a microscope or with a telescope. With a microscope, you, you take something tiny and you make it look big so you can see it. With a telescope, you take something massive and far away and you make it look nearer so you can see it, right? Which way do we magnify God? God is, is like a massive, glorious star in a distant galaxy, so massive, but often in our lives feels so small because he feels so far away. For you to magnify Christ is to devote your life to zoom in and show everybody he's way bigger than you think. He's way better than you think than you could ever imagine. He is glorious. That is why you exist. That's why you're here. That's why we're here as a church. That was Adam and Eve's purpose when God created them in the beginning but we know the story. We know that they were shortly after tempted by a serpent. They failed. And as a result, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In the worldview of oneism, salvation has to be an inside job. Think about it. There's no one outside. We've got to fix it ourselves. We've got to look within. We've got to look to the environment. We've got to look to our community. Salvation has to come from the created but in twoism, in the Christian worldview, if you understand the distinction between the creator and the created, salvation is coming to us not from the inside, but from outside, in. And Jesus comes from outside and steps into this world, lives a sinless life, dies a sinner's death, rises from the dead, so that we can be made right with God. Is that what you believe, friend? Do you know him? Genesis 1-1 teaches us that the creator is distinct from his creation. If we fail to recognize this distinction, we will forget who we are and we will forget why we're here. That's exactly what happened to Jill, Eustace, and Puddleglum when they were talking to the queen of Underland in the silver chair. 
in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia series. Uh, Jill, Eustace, and Puddleglum, who's a marsh wiggle, by the way, if you were curious, they were looking, you weren't, they were looking to rescue Prince Rillian from the queen's underground enchantments. But when they meet her, they find themselves quickly succumbing to her enchantments themselves. She tries to convince them that there, there is no overground world. This underground world is all that there is. There's no overworld. There, there's no Narnia. There never was a Narnia. And Puddle Glum, the Marsh Wiggle, insisted that there, there was a Narnia. After all, he says, I've seen the sun. And the witch says, what is this sun that you speak of? They looked at a lamp, and they tried to explain, you know, it's, it's kind of like a lamp, except it hangs in the sky, and it's much bigger, and it's much brighter, and the witch laughs, and she, she asks, when you try to think out clearly what the sun must be, you, you can't tell me. You can only tell me it's like the lamp. Your sun is a dream, and there's nothing in that dream that was not copied from the lamp. The lamp is the real thing. The sun is but a tale, a children's story. This underworld is all that there is. There is no sun. Can I tell you, that's what the prince of darkness has been telling people for thousands of years. This world is all that there is. There's no sun. There's nothing outside, nothing beyond, no one to love you, no one to save you, no one to redeem you, no one to see what you do in secret. So eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. The Christian worldview is so different. The Christian worldview says there is a son, there is a God outside of this universe who loves us, and on a hill called Calvary, he died for us, and in him we have all died. So we eat, drink, and be merry, because yesterday we were dead, and in him we're now alive. Let us continue to cling to that truth until the moment that we step outside of this world and see him face to face. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your great and glorious word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you, Jesus, that you stepped into this world and that even though your own did not receive you, you willingly, gladly died for them and for all who would repent and believe. God, if there's any in this room that don't know Christ, I pray that they would not leave here today before they talk with somebody. Head to the white flag or talk to the person that they came with and, and talk with somebody about what it means to follow Jesus. For we who are your people, forgive us for how quickly we are prone to pride, to look down on those that don't understand these things to forget that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, that it is not our merit, it's not our will, it's not our bloodline that saves us, it's Christ. And so help us to look with compassion on those who don't understand, help us to tell them the truth, and help us to resist the enemy's lies. When we're tempted to say there is no sun, there is nothing beyond this, help us to cling to you, the one who holds us fast. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?